I didn't know what I had to do. I just knew I had to do something. Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Jane Goodall, one of the world's best-known primatologists and advocates for animal welfare and the environment. She'll share with us a critical message about hope, both how it propels her and how we can all use it as a tool for action. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. I think what people need to understand is my meaning of hope. It's not sitting back, looking at the world through rose-tinted spectacles and saying, oh, well, it'll be fine. No, it's action. At 26, Jane Goodall lived amongst chimpanzees in the wild, beginning a research effort that would provide the world unprecedented insights into how these animals lived and behaved and their similarities to humans. Her work would eventually make history, bringing her global acclaim, a renown she later realized she could channel into a greater good as an activist. Her Jane Goodall Institute raises money for things like habitat conservation and poverty alleviation and its Roots and Shoots programs helps young people learn how they can drive conservation in their own communities and make change happen. It is a key moment to talk about change. This episode is tied to run the week of the Global Climate Summit, COP26. The meeting is held this year in Glasgow, Scotland, where more than 100 world leaders will discuss how to prevent some of the world's worst calamities, the ones that come with ever-rising global temperatures. That is a daunting challenge, and you would not be wrong to think that hope is in short supply. But Jane Goodall is here to tell those leaders in Glasgow, and all of us listening, that there are reasons for hope. At 87, that belief is so strong she is busier than ever. The hundreds of speaking engagements that she traveled to pre-COVID have all gone online. And on Zoom call after Zoom call, she takes her chance to remind thousands that this is a critical moment for the climate and that everyone plays a key role. She even released her 22nd book for adults, The Book of Hope, The Survival Guide for Trying Times. One of those many video calls she's done this year was with me. She talked to Meet the Leader about how she defines hope and how hope can be a call to action. She also talked about the positive changes she's seeing that she might never have predicted. She'll talk about all these things, but first, she'll take us back to a key moment where she saw she could make a difference. A conference in 1986 and a session on habitat loss that helped her evolve from researcher to activist. A moment that helped change her life. I went to that conference, it was a four-day conference, mainly to find out from the different field sites that by then existed, uh, did chimp behavior differ according to the environment? Was there something like culture and so on? The answer to both, of course, is yes. But we had a session on conservation, which was absolutely shattering. And seeing that right across Africa, where chimps were studied, their numbers were decreasing, forests were disappearing. And then a session on conditions in some captive situations. What I will never forget is videos of our closest relatives, highly social, highly intelligent beings in five foot by five foot prisons in medical research with nothing. And so I went to that conference. By that time, I had my PhD. I was in, you know, 
the best days of my life in the forests of Gombe, learning about chimpanzees. But I left as an activist, and there wasn't, people say it must have been a hard decision. I didn't make a decision, it was something that happened, and I was changed. And I always call it my Damascus moment, because if anyone remembers Paul on the road to Damascus, and he starts off as a key persecutor of the early Christians, and something happens on the road, and he ends up as going out and preaching about Jesus all around. So it was like that. Something happened. Click. No decision. I didn't know what I had to do. I just knew I had to do something. I, I think so many people are in that same moment. They don't know what to do. They would like to do something for the environment. They know it's important, but they don't know their first step. What is your advice to them? Well, I think my first step may be a little different to what I advise <laughs> people. I mean, first of all, I had to brace myself and actually go into medical research labs because I think you need to see firsthand. And um, secondly, I needed to see more about what was happening across Africa. So I'm not advocating that for these people who don't know what to do. I, I did find a way of helping. But for, for people who feel helpless, we keep being told, I hear it again and again, think globally but act locally. But if you think globally, you cannot help but be depressed. I mean... It's ghastly what's happening around the world. You've only got to think of Afghanistan. You've only got to think of the terrible effects that the hurricanes and typhoons and flooding and fires and heat waves are having. It's awful. So yeah. don't think globally, but think, what can I do here in my community? What do I care about? Well, I care about the homeless. Nobody seems to care. Okay, get some people together who feel like you and see what you can do, sit down and talk about it. Or if you're a kid, you can clear litter off the streets and prevent it going into the rivers and polluting the sea and killing animals. Or, you know, there's all kinds of different things that you can do locally. And as you do them, you know that people just like you are doing the same sort of things around the world. And then, then you dare think globally. We'll do it together your research took a very special brand of, of tenacity. And I think to tackle these big challenges for the environment, that also takes tenacity. Do you think that people lose sight of the fact that hope takes tenacity? I think that people, once they think about it, understand that, of course, that's true. On the other hand, there are different kinds of hope. And I've been brought face to face with that recently because I've been talking with some political prisoners and the, there's nothing they can actively do except hope. And I think we have to try and encourage them. So I asked one of them, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you cope with hope? And he said, well, it's really important not to rely too much on hope because then if your hope is disappointed and not released after all, then you sink into deep gloom. And different people have different things to cling on to. And one of the things I found with some of these prisoners is seeing a little bit of nature, seeing buds burst into, into blossom, birds flying past their little window. And that gives them hope somehow. 
one of the approaches that you've had uh, to mobilizing people and educating people has been to use storytelling to connect with people on maybe a more um, compassionate level. Why is that so useful? Why is that such a helpful way to connect with people? Living through World War Two taught me an awful lot about how to hang hang in there. Growing up during the war, there were all these stories coming out and stories about courage and heroism, stories about survival. And I've watched people who tackle problems a little aggressively and they start arguing with the protagonist, let's say, somebody who thinks differently from them. And you can actually see the entire thing goes wrong because the person they're talking to and pointing a finger out and saying, you've got to change, the eyes sort of cloud over and you can see that person thinking of a rebuttal to what he's being or she's being told. And especially if it's a young person talking to a much older, especially dominant male, uh, they don't want to be told what to do. So I found find some point of, of contact between you and the person you're going to talk to. Find it on the internet or something. Maybe you both love dogs. Spend one minute or two minutes talking about that. So you build a tiny little bridge between you and your different ideas. And then you've got to reach the heart. It's no good arguing with the head. It's no good blinding someone with statistics. Change must come from within, I believe, real change. I mean, you may get lip service. You may get somebody saying, yes, of course, you're right, of course, blah, blah, blah. But if you reach the heart, and I can only reach the heart through telling stories, stories can change people. I was in a taxi cab in London going to the airport for a two-week trip to the U.S., and the taxi driver knew who I was. And he started on at me. Oh, you're just like my sister. I can't stand the likes of you. There's all these suffering people. All you care about animals. She goes to the animal children. On and on and on. <sighs> so I sat forward and I told him stories about the chimps, how we were helping people to rise out of poverty, how we were f helping people find alternative jobs. Uh, I told him how we had sanctuaries for orphan chimps, some of the stories about the chimps showing compassion and altruism to each other. Oh, he just grumpy, 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 and we get to the airport, and neither of us had any change. So in the end, he owed me what I think today would be the equivalent of $50 maybe. And I said, oh, donate it to your sister for her work, thinking we'll go and drink it, <laughs> off in the pub with his friend. I got back after two weeks. There was a letter from the sister. She said, first of all, thank you for your donation. But secondly, what did you do to my brother? She said, he's been three times to help me. He's interested. He asks questions. In, in your mind, how have you changed as a, as a leader? You, you know, you've, you've honed some of these and, 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 and learned the power of storytelling. But was there maybe a, a moment where you had uh, maybe a, a different approach? Like, how have you changed over the years? Well, I don't think my approach has changed. I think all that's changed is that I have gained a little more self-confidence. Um, you know, I never set out to be what I've become. I just wanted to sit in the forest with chimps. And when first people started coming up to me, after the geographic articles, of course, 
uh, saying, oh, could I have your autograph? I was, I was kind of shocked and thinking, why? What have I done? Why do they want my autograph? And when journalists came up, I tried to hide from them. I went through airports with dark glasses and my hair down. didn't seem to make any difference. And so gradually I came to accept that this was part of what I was trying to do, that I must use this notoriety or whatever you want to call it. And so started handing out little environmentally friendly, the size of a business card, but it pulls out and tells them about Jane Goodall Institute and Roots and Shoots. And you could actually trace my progress around the US by where Roots and Shoots groups started up. What's changed is that I've got a little bit more self-confidence. And although I do not understand why me, somehow I've been, I mean, it's almost like a mission. This is what I have to do. And right now the mission is to give people hope so that they don't give up because it's only if we all get together to tackle these problems that we can avert absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. You've had many, many books out. This is the 22nd for, for adults. What's important now in this moment to um, uh, message to get out to people? We're living in pretty grim times, and that's covering the political scenario, social, and, of course, especially environmental. When people lose hope, then they sink into apathy and do nothing or they might become violent and aggressive. But I think what people need to understand is my meaning of hope. It's not sitting back, looking at the world through rose-tinted spectacles and saying, oh, well, it'll be fine. You know, I hope everything is going to be okay. No, it's action. It's, I, I just realized it's rather like being in a very dark tunnel with many obstacles that have to be climbed over. And it seems impossible to get to the other end where there's this little speck of light. That's hope. Hope won't happen unless we take action and we fight to get there. And as you do more and more, you find you're more hopeful. And then you want to do even more. And as you do that, other people are inspired and they join in. And so it's a, an upward spiral. You said that you've recently realized that hope can sometimes be like a dark tunnel with light at the end. Has your understanding of hope changed? I think it was during the writing of this book that I really was forced by my co-author, my interrogator, Doug Abrams. He forced me to think things through that I hadn't really contemplated before. The answers were there, but I hadn't sought them. And so it was during the writing of that book, that it became very clear to me that it, hope is only a useful tool if it's hope leading to action. And, and how can hope lead to action? If you have hope, then you will have the energy to tackle a problem, which before you had hope, there wasn't any point tackling, because if you don't think you can make a difference, why bother? Why don't we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? <laughs> a lot of people have that attitude. They don't care. You know, I found that was true with many young people way back um, in the late 1980s, which is why I started our youth program, because they were saying, well, we don't have hope because you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. So we have compromised the future of the next generations. We've been stealing it for years. 
but it's not too late to take action. There is something every person can do. Leaders are going to be gathering in November for the climate summit. How important uh, is it, uh, do you think, for us to look at what drives human action? What's driving maybe someone to cut down forests or, uh, you know, overhunt or overfish animals? Um, how important is it for us to sort of not lose sight of the things that are maybe indirectly connected to the environment, but incredibly destructive? Everything is interconnected. And what you just said is a perfect example because. When you're living in poverty, you're going to cut down the forest because your family is still growing. Nobody's bothered to come and talk to you about family planning. You cut down the trees to make more soil because your own farmland is overused and infertile. Or you cut them down to, to sell, to get money, timber or charcoal or something. If you're living in an urban area, you're going to buy the cheapest junk food or clothing because you can't afford to ask, as we can, did it harm the environment? Was it cruel to animals, like in the factory farms? Is it cheap because of unfair wages or forced labor? They have to buy the cheapest simply to survive. So alleviating poverty is terribly important. Somehow trying to reduce the unsustainable lifestyle of the rest of us. And things which only an economist or somebody skilled in business practices can try to address the fact that all of this, the cruelty of the factory farms, the cheap junk food, the uh, industrial agriculture that's poisoning the soil with chemical fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, and so on. It's big business competing to produce cheaper goods so that they get more customers. And how that is addressed, I don't know. But the, again, there's always a silver lining. More and more businesses and big corporations are beginning to change. And I was talking to a CEO of a big company a couple of weeks ago. And he said, Jane, we've changed for three reasons. First of all, we see the writing on the wall. We see that natural resources in some places are being used up faster than nature can replenish them. And so if we don't change and act in a more res environmentally responsible way, that's the end of our business. And secondly, he said consumer pressure. People are beginning to become aware and they are demanding products that are produced ethically. We've had to change. But he said, a few years ago, when my daughter was about 10 years old, she came home from school one day and she said, Daddy, what you're doing, is it, is it hurting the world, the planet? Is it harming the environment? Because that's what people are telling me. And it's my world when I grow up. And he said, that went straight to my heart. And it was the final thing to create major change. What is the change that you would like to see? I'm sure a lot of people have been asking you this question, but uh, what, what was, is the change that you would like to see as leaders gather? So often, unfortunately, these big gatherings, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of promises made, there's a lot of head nodding. And then afterwards, the talk goes on and it, of course, leads to some change, but not the kind of change we need now, which is a dramatic change. And... 
I, I have a hope that this COP26 might be different, partly because until, I don't know how long ago, but, you know, people in the wealthy countries said, well, why should I care about climate change, even if I believe in it? Yeah, it's Bangladesh is losing its country to, to flooding and so on, and sea levels are rising and people have had to leave their homes. And Yes, I know all about this, but so what? It doesn't affect me. I can just carry on as usual. But now, especially with the pandemic, which we brought on ourselves by our disrespect of animals and nature, creating ever more conditions where where bacteria, viruses can jump from an animal to a person. But in addition to that, which has been a wake-up call, there's also the fact that the wealthy countries now are being affected by climate change. Think of Hurricane Ida in the US just a couple of weeks ago. Think of the unprecedented flooding in New York. Think of how states like Florida and other other bits down south are being affected by flooding and hurricanes. Think of what happened uh, in Europe with all the flooding and the heat waves this past year. So it's it's hitting home to the people who have the power to really make a difference. And if you're a political leader, you may have to bite the bullet and insist on change, even if people complain. And that's tough. And I don't know how people deal with that, unless we get a critical mass of um, people in the general public who support those tough changes. So we are moving faster. And hopefully COP26 can somehow trumpet these things into the air so that more people become aware and take action. Is there a, a change that's happened recently that maybe you thought would never happen? Well, I think some of the changes in corporate behavior are really, really surprising. Shareholders are changing and big companies deciding they're not going to deal with people who aren't environmentally responsible. Those are major changes and they might not have been predictable 10 years ago. I think the number of people who've understood that protecting forests and planting trees is a way to go. And, you know, the, the um, World Economic Forum with the UN launched this Trillion Tree Challenge and the work that we're doing with the Jane Goodall Institute and Trees for Jane is helping contribute to that initiative. The most important, of course, is to protect the existing forests with all their rich biodiversity. And what's so important is for everyone to understand we are part of the natural world. Even living in the middle of a city, we depend on the natural world for, for clean air and water and food and clothing, for everything. But we depend on healthy ecosystems. And an ecosystem is made up of the different plant and animal species. And I see it as like a living tapestry. And every time a species becomes extinct, because we are in the midst of a great extinction crisis, then it pulls a thread from the tapestry. And if enough threads are pulled, the tapestry will hang in tatters, the ecosystem will collapse. So that's why biodiversity loss is so very important and protecting forests and banning intensive farming, which is killing the soil, 
killing pollinators, actually harming people. We know what we need to do, and we just have to have enough visionaries to come together and enough general public to understand, to make it happen before it's too late. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Certain decisions need to be made and, and pushed forward. How can people uh, avoid a standstill? Well, the only way is that the leaders understand that what's happening in the world is ultimately going to be bad for them. Do they have children or grandchildren? Because if they do, and the stories can reach their heart when they think of that darling little baby growing up and maybe finding too many ecosystems have collapsed and that child will be living in poverty. So it's it's just a question of having the leaders understand the problems and feel compelled to get together and hold hands and present a united front. And I think if that happened, then more and more of the general public would want to help because let's face it, a lot of people have just given up on governments and a lot of people hate big corporations. But if they see that there really is a real desire and a reason for that desire in these top leaders, then then I think they might be more hopeful about the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in past interviews, you've talked about five things that give you hope, connectivity, nature's resilience, the human spirit, human intellect, young people. In the next year, is there any one of these uh, things that give you hope that you think is going to be more important than the others in tackling these big goals? <laughs> no. As I've said before, <laughs> everything's interrelated. They're all important. Yeah. They all connect with each other. And just to concentrate on one of those means that we'll never get to the goal. And as I say, fortunately, there are enough interest groups uh, working on all the different issues that we're facing today. But we really, really, I mean, we need, you know, the energy of young people. That's terribly important. They're the next generation. We've left them with a terrible mess. And we need to work with them to try and find solutions to the problems. But they're rising to the challenge in a most amazing way. We've got incredible young leaders around the world in, in young people. And then, you know, the human intellect. Well, we're beginning to come up with solutions to tackle climate change, to live in greater harmony with nature. And each one of us are thinking how we can lead a more or we can be thinking how we can leave lighter ecological footprints. And um, this intellect has created the internet, which is enabling you and me to talk. We'll be enabling people in different parts of the world to listen. And so this connectivity, sharing of stories, sharing of problems, most important sharing of solutions. And if only the media would spend more time on telling stories about the wonderful things that are going on around the world, the resilience of nature. Yes, it's terribly important, but people need to know that if you take an area we've totally destroyed and give it time or some help, it can once again support life. People need to know that. That needs to be shared. And then this indomitable spirit more people need to know about the incredible people who are doing amazing things and not giving up. They're tackling problems that other people say, oh, you can't, 
you can't do anything about that. They persevere. And even if they don't see result in their lifetime, they will have inspired other people to carry on until that goal is reached. So all of those different aspects are equally important because of the way they interrelate with each other. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned that uh, you're busier now that you were when you were traveling uh, b- before COVID. What is your your routine? What's a typical day for you these days? Oh, my typical day is um, having not slept most of the night because of so many problems. So I usually put on an audio book, especially when I know that maybe I drift off to sleep, wake up different times. Usually I'm woken up by a little robin singing on my bird table outside my window up in the attic where I am now and have my half piece of toast and cup of coffee for breakfast, go through my emails that came in overnight, usually about 50, then get to work on either writing out lectures that I have to do on Zoom or something like that and half an hour for lunch, sitting under my favorite tree in the garden usually joined by Robin and Blackbird, and then back more of the same thing, recording videos, um, and so different videos. I mean, just yesterday, I was doing one for a fundraising gala to raise funds for our donkey programs. Uh, One was to help Indian um, elephants used in the temples um, and being really cruelly treated in some of the forests. Uh, One was about camels, the wild camel of North America, and then a couple were sort of more normal environmental ones. But going all around the world in one day is uh, a little bit exhausting. (laughs) Then by the evening when it gets dark, I go downstairs. Now it's autumn, we can light a little fire and I have supper with my sister and the rest of the family is usually doing other things, her daughter and two grown grandsons and um, then come back up here and do a few last emails and things, sometimes a phone call, Zoom call at 9, 9.30. That's yeah. a typical day. It doesn't vary. Oh, I do try and get a half-hour walk in the summer. I did it when I got downstairs about 7. Now it's too dark then, so I try and take an extra half-hour at lunchtime. Because you've got to keep fit somehow. Of course. Um, Is there a a book that you recommend? Well, I will get into enormous trouble from my co-author and my publisher and the people who've worked so hard to promote this book (laughs) if I don't mention the Book of Hope. And also, I think that of the people who've read it, they found hope. So I'm not hesitant to recommend it. It was a lot, a lot, a lot of work and heart soul searching. There's the um, major four reasons for hope. There's one section on each of those. Um, And I think they're all important, as I've just said. And then the final one is um, about my journey and the question that I was asked the other day, like, what's your next great adventure? It was before COVID. I had about Five ten thousand people in the audience, and I thought about this question: What's my next adventure? If I'd been asked twenty years ago, I would have said, "Oh, I want to go into some wild forest that nobody's explored in Papua New Guinea or something like that." But that's not for me now. I'm eighty-seven, and so I said, 
dying. And there was a kind of gasp and titter around the room. And I said, well, when you die, you know, there's either nothing, in which case, well, problem's over, or there's something. And I happen to believe there's something from things that have happened to me, which ex are explained in this book for people who are interested. And if there is something beyond our physical death, then what adventure can be more exciting than finding out? And afterwards, the woman came up to me and she said, Jane, I never like to think about death, but now I'm kind of curious. Thank you. So it's not the actual death that's intimidating. It's the dying process. And we all know, we've known people who suffer for a long time because they're incapacitated, they're crippled, they have to be looked after, they don't want to live anymore. On the other hand, you get some indomitable spirits who are in that position, who make the most of it and inspire others. I've known both. Before we uh, break, is, is there anything else that you think is really, really important that you'd like to drive home? Uh, well, I have the airwaves. I would yes. like to say that it's really important that, that everybody understands that they, as an in individual, matter. That they make a difference. They make an impact on the planet every single day. And unless living in abject poverty, you can make conscious choices, ethical choices, in how you live each day. And even the very poor, they can make some choices too, like, am I going to be kind or cruel to an injured animal that I find? Am I going to smile and reach out to a sick person in my community? So we can all make some decisions to lead a more ethical life, a more environmentally sustainable life. I want everybody to know that. They matter. And they may think, I'm just one person, what I do can't make a difference. No, if it was just one person, it wouldn't. But the cumulative effect of millions, hopefully billions of people making conscious ethical choices will move us towards a better world. And the last thing I would say is that one thing which is, is amazing, every single major religion, all of them, have the same golden rule. And that is, do to others as you would have them do to you. If everybody followed that golden rule and we applied it to how you think about and act towards animals and nature, and if we could even bring it to government levels, national levels, just think what the world would be like. That was the amazing Jane Goodall. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leader's sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping you understand the biggest problems of our time. Radio Davos has been working on a series of environment episodes running up to and running during COP26. Here's a sampling of what you can expect on Radio Davos. I'm swimming in the water, I'm in the ice, and I've been in the ice for the last 18 years, and I'm seeing the changes and I'm feeling it. You don't have to be an extreme swimmer like Lewis Pugh braving sub-zero Arctic waters to notice climate change is really happening. Immense storms that come down wipe away homes, forests going up in flames around the world, people in subways in China and in New York. So what 
was seen as this faraway problem is now here and now. As the COP26 climate summit approaches, the Radio Davos podcast will take you to the heart of the problem with some of the world's top thinkers. We are already in a period of climate change. It's already begun. Weather extremes will be ever more extreme and more common. So we'll have more severe storms, more floods, more droughts. And that's the result of not doing very much effective about it. Frankly, that's where we're going right now. That is the scenario we're headed to. In a series of special episodes leading up to the Climate Summit, Radio Davos will take you into the cold but worryingly warming waters of the Arctic. I remember opening my curtains at 4am and getting ready for the swim, and one of these icebergs dislodged. It was like an explosion. Thousands and thousands and thousands of icebergs pouring out. It was like a motorway. And we'll talk to people who are not giving up hope that we can avert catastrophe. We need different solutions that actually prioritise the well-being of people and the planet. We will have gotten the Earth back on a much more benign climate trajectory. And as the politicians talk the talk... The adolescence of humanity is coming to an end. It's time for humanity to grow up. We'll be looking for solutions in areas such as the ocean, forests, energy and our cities. We could stop using our atmosphere as an open sewer. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Don't miss our coverage of climate change and COP26. That's would have a real impact. On Radio Davos. That was my colleague Robin Pomeroy with a sampling of his special COP26 episodes of Radio Davos. Find episodes of that and meet the leader at wef.ch slash podcasts. That's it for me. Thanks so much to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the creation of Meet the Leader. And my thanks go out to this week's guest, Jane Goodall. And thanks to you for listening. To learn more about all of the ways that we can protect our world, check out our COP26 content center on weforum.org. Additionally, my colleagues will be in Glasgow bringing you video insights from leaders and changemakers on the ground. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and on Twitter so you don't miss a moment. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>